This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, joining you today again from my home office via Zoom as we continue to work remotely to bring you new content. If you're hungry for fresh episodes of Women at Work, they premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and our full catalog of past shows are available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Just search on Women at Work and Laura Zarrow to find us, and be sure to follow us on Twitter, at SXM Business, as well as at Laura Zarrow. You guys know we talk all the time about how we can try and make work not just more diverse, but more inclusive in that way that makes everybody feel like they truly belong. Whether we're considering the things that seem as simple as the now ubiquitous Zoom meeting or the complex challenge of talking directly about race with one another, we have a lot of opportunities to do better especially once we get the right guidance, which is why I am so thrilled to have Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts, Professor of Practice at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business joining us today. For those of you who don't know of her, she is a truly innovative global scholar and consultant on the science of maximizing human potential in diverse organizations and communities. So basically, we need her in almost every place we go. She's taught a wide range of topics that include group dynamics, negotiations, and leadership at some of the country's most impactful business schools, including Harvard, Simmons School of Management, and yes, Wharton. She is the 2020 inaugural recipient of the Academy of Management Organizational Behavior Award for Societal Impact. Laura is a prolific writer who has also edited three books, Race, Work, and Leadership, positive organizing in a global society, and exploring positive identities in organizations. She's the author of a recent Harvard Business Review article called Working from Home While Black, and as I just learned, a really moving poet. So with that, Laura, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you, Laura. So glad to be here with you today. Same here. So I want to start by talking about that HBR article on Zoom meetings, because we're in one right now. Mm-hmm. Why is it that our Black colleagues are facing additional challenges beyond what we are with what's now become this weird standard way of working? Well, the challenges, I think, um, range from the public health and racist pandemics that are front and center in our lives every day. Um, So there's no place to check that at the door or even the proverbial door when you sign on for your Zoom meeting. I mean, even if we were going to the office every day, um, the weight of the societal crises that surround us right now um, and just the depth of uncertainty and grief and loss is nearly impossible to compartmentalize or tuck away or or put to the side. Um, You would say everybody in the organization is dealing with these things. We're all being affected by it right now. And that is absolutely true. We are all being affected by it, but black and brown people are being disproportionately affected not only by racism, but also by the public health crisis. So this is everything that happens before I even open up that screen and press join. 
Okay. What else is going through my mind before I press join? Well, I'm very conscious about my appearance before I press join. Why so? Because black workers are subject to a number of negative stereotypes that suggest that they are less likely to quote unquote fit into the culture. Um, and we often use many cultural signals, uh, simple display cues about appearance, hairstyle, uh, dress, um, gosh, things as as subtle as uh, color of clothing or, you know, the size of your <laughs> earrings. I mean, it's you know, true. all different stylistic choices are used as signals and indicators of whether you fit into the culture. And, um, and then we, we even generalize beyond that to develop this uh, assessment about whether or not you're a professional and you have leadership potential and you're truly focused and present and committed and engaged in your work, right? So before I press video on, I've got all those different things running through my mind. Wait a minute, what's in my background? What am I wearing? Yes, we're at home. And yeah, the CEO might have on a t-shirt and a baseball cap and everybody thinks that's really cool and funny to see the CEO dressing down, but I can't show up to work like that. So I'm being mindful of myself and how I show up. And then the third thing that I'm mindful of, Laura, is, are my physical surroundings. So I'm here talking to you on Zoom and I have two children who are learning from home right now. And so I am in a quiet space where you and I can have this quiet conversation, but this is not where I have set up my personal home studio for the past six months. And I'm blessed that I have space in my common area that I could dedicate to be a personal home studio. And then I have a quiet space where I can go to right now, but please rest assured, I'm sitting here with my virtual screen on the backdrop. So you're looking at the University of Virginia on a beautiful day right now. You are not looking at me sitting in my bedroom having this conversation. Why? Because I, I have seen senior level executives, male executives in particular, having Zoom meetings from all over their house, from their kids' rooms, and the basement, and the garage. And people think it's cool, right? Because the assumption is that they have power, they have access, they have resources. So they're kind of leveling when they're showing themselves in these ways. But if there are people who may be stereotyped of having less, or maybe they actually do have less, then they are putting more of that on display as well. So there are a lot of status signals that are coming through on Zoom, even if we're on mute, but we can talk about that part later. <laughs> Indeed, okay, I wanna unpack this a little bit because I have a lot of questions. You, you shared so much that's important with us. And I'm gonna start with where I am right now. So, you know, our listeners know I'm recording, we're doing this from my home studio, which to be perfectly honest is in my master bedroom closet because, you know, this is a uh, sound-based medium and it sounds the best when my clothes can absorb all that noise. But I was worried and I'd like your, tell me honestly, when I'm showing you that private space of mine, am I making it harder for you or easier? And is this a question of where we fall in whether there's a hierarchical relationship or not? This hierarchy is absolutely key. 
um, you're bringing me on to your show as a subject matter expert. So in this dialogue, in this exchange, we're peers. You're the host of the show. It's a well-established show. It's affiliated with Wharton, which is an elite institution. You have other important roles and responsibilities within that space, right? So the way that we connect with one another around these physical spaces is shaped by that hierarchy and our belief about how much power and status you already have. It would be very different, Laura, if this were a job interview and you were interviewing for a job and your background surrounding what's your bedroom closet, no matter how lovely your clothes are, which they are quite lovely. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you would have a different level of concern. You would have a different level of concern if you were the admin in a meeting. So in a lot of these Zoom meetings, you have your administrative support and your, um, your project managers who are jumping on the meetings, helping to make sure that things are documented and you know, communicating the follow-up. Even, we've even got tech support folks on the meeting too. So there are some status differences, but I, I think about those individuals, like they're sitting in this room in this space, they are often conscientious about how people who have um, more power or more status in the organization are sort of viewing them. So they're carefully curating their spaces because of those dynamics, even though they may not be expected to say anything at all during the meeting or to present very much at all. Like, you know, isn't that interesting? You still have to kind of show up in a certain way. Because as you said, we, um, like we know even in interviews, how many seconds does it take for somebody to prejudge us? Split um, second. <laughs> it's a split second before our colleagues and the person on the other side of these calls are making assessments, perhaps unintentionally, but they're taking, we we're providing a lot of information at that time. So let me ask a question about another layer of information. Um, I'm an an artist as, as part of a whole other part of my life. I've collected art from the things that have mattered and the people that have mattered to me and it's all over my house. And some cool. of it is overtly political. Yeah. It, I, it hit me that I'm you know, setting up my art in my house so that I enjoy it. But now all of a sudden, um, some of it's quite gendered. Um, is that gonna be a good thing, a bad thing, a dangerous thing? What does it mean for me to think about it and then and I'm white. What does it mean for our colleagues of color to have to grapple with the space that they've designed for themselves now to be on display? They've designed these spaces, Laura, because they don't feel that they can bring their authentic selves into the workplace. And you know what? They're right. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I can't hang my art at work. It no, would not fly. I mean, the, and the data show that people are judged unfavorably when they signal that they have non-prototypical beliefs and profiles and cultural affiliations, maybe political beliefs and affiliations as well. We generally don't think deviance is an attractive thing. I, I differ on that, but that's a different conversation. We get to that. But how people cope with this tension of not being able to bring their whole full selves to work 
is to channel that authentic expression into their private spaces. Okay, so I'll put on the uniform at work. I'll sanitize my office space. Give me a generic little picture. Let me hang my diplomas. Let me put a couple of, you know, non-political books on the bookshelf. So even if I'm Zooming from my office, I'm not giving any identity indicators that might, you know, cross wires with the kind of working relationship that I'm trying to establish in that moment. Now I'm back at home. And all of a sudden, I am now inviting people into the space that has been my personal identity sanctuary, you know, and I've carefully crafted it so that it reflects who I am and what I care about and what I think and how I feel. I have a lot of Black art in my home. Um, it's either landscape or images of Blackness in my home. And... I got a big map and put it on the wall behind me as a way to still signal that I care about the world, I care about cultures, I care about differences, I care about diversity, you know, and then I have a couple of African baskets on the wall to give my depth and the pop of color, right? But there are some other pieces that I don't have in my background set up for all of the reasons that you're calling out. So when you mentioned before, we're living in a world that is um, heartbreakingly, suffering in heartbreaking ways. We're carrying grief. We're carrying fear. Then after we figure out some way to package that up in the morning, we have to do the crazy making dance of is what I'm wearing appropriate, you know, in this, while I have kids jumping in the background and I haven't been able to get a haircut in four months. And then on top of it, we have to, and especially it's not, and when we deal with intersectionality, all these people are hiding their identities in a way that actually takes physical energy every day. And then we show up to work. Yeah. Well, no, we don't show up to work. Then they show up in our living room. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. We know how to show up to work. We figured that part out. But right. We, we just figured out how to have company every day. <laughs> That's hysterical. That's perfect. The sitcom, The Office, you know, as, as bad as Michael was as a manager on The Office, at least it was all happening in The Office. When they took off-site, that's when things really went off the rails. So now we're just having an off-site every day, but having our, our co-workers and often strangers, clients, for me, a professor. Right. It's as nervous making as having my mother over every day. By the way, for those of you who- With no time to clean up. Exactly. So Laura, in the same article, there was an important concept that you talked about that isn't just about um, the setting around us. It's also about um, something deeply interpersonal, and that's code switching. Can you help explain to our listeners what it is and where that's adding yet a whole other layer of pressure? Code switching is how Black people and other marginalized people cope with unconscious bias that is coming at them every day. It kind of hangs, as Claude Steele said, as a threat in the air. You know, this threat that you will confirm a negative stereotype in someone's mind that you're not as competent, that you're not as articulate that you're not as committed to your work or your career um, as your white male counterparts may, may be. 
um, that you don't have the same, therefore, potential to grow and develop within the firm or within your career, um, in, or even within an educational institution, as many of your counterparts have. You know, those are the stereotypes and the threats that hang in the air. So code switching is a coping response. And the code switching response involves showing, uh, compartmentalizing so that when I'm at work, I have a work version of myself. And when I'm outside of work, I have a outside of work version of myself. Now you would say, okay, white guys do that too. And you're absolutely right. Moms do that too. You're absolutely right. We all code switch. What does code switch look like and feel like for black professionals? They're also monitoring the disclosure of their racial identity and affiliations and values and beliefs in short form showing up to work in ways that are less likely to signal negative stereotypes about their race they try to quote unquote act less black at work but when they're outside of work they will interact they'll talk with they'll go to the social activities and the church fellowships and the bid whist parties and family reunions and lots of other things that typify black culture and black experience outside of work. But there's a very firm boundary between inside and outside of work and having to navigate those boundaries to turn it on and turn it off creates additional emotional and cognitive loads called the tax. So when we talk about bringing our whole selves to work, is yeah. that fundamentally impossible when we have to code switch? I think when you take it to the, you know, to the to basic foundation of it, yeah, you're right. You know, if we're code switching, we are in principle not bringing our whole selves to work. Now, I, I put a sidebar on this because I have written a lot about authenticity. And so I appreciate the tensions in authenticity, just as we mentioned before, like there are some things about me that just don't need to come out at work. <laughs> they're not relevant. Yeah, I got <laughs> a list too. They're not productive, right? They're right, not yeah. helpful. Like they're Laura, very happily staying at home. That's right. Laura has best self. Laura has mediocre self. Mediocre self shows up at, 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 at times. Okay. But then Laura has worse self and we need to kind of try to keep worse self in, in the closet, like away from everybody. Right, and and Laura has, I, this out. Laura has weird self. I yeah, can stay you know, at home too. There can be that. I mean, or, you know, I, a number of different ways that we have interests and beliefs and hobbies and things that may not be relevant to work and they don't have to be on full blast at work. They can still inform our decision-making and be part of our identity that we carry back and forth, but they don't have to be on full blast at work. But there's a difference between that and going through the day feeling that you actively have to suppress your beliefs. You have to change the way you talk. You have to edit the things that you talk about and the things that you share. You have to curate an image of yourself that suggests you're friendly and open and welcoming, you know, and well, interesting. As, as I'm putting together these things that you're saying, I want to see if I'm, and they're, they're adding up to an equation in my head. I want to test it out and see if I'm getting this. That we talk, society talks, media, lots of us talk about bringing our full selves to work as, and that we want our employees to be able to do that, but not for them, but because it's good for work. And it's make, yet 
the, this hugely important thing that you're talking about is that the, the pressure to manage, subjugate, um, deploy strategically is exhausting. It's not, it almost seems like it's a cruel thing to force people to go through every day. So is it that we need to switch the paradigm from you're bringing your whole self to work for work or work is embracing who you are so that you can thrive, so that you are not exhausted by having to code switch and hide yourself. And how do we go about doing that? Yeah, so I think we have to examine the culture and the context and um, determine whether it, you know, it's, it's truly healthy. So here's a metaphor that could be helpful. You know, think about um, the fish in the sea. So the fish in the sea are completely comfortable in the sea. They don't even recognize that the water is the water until you take them out of the sea and you put them out of the water and then they could totally cannot survive at all outside of the water. So then there is no crossing out of the water for a fish and it did remain viable, right? Mm -hmm. But for the, and then maybe that's the case for many people in the work environment too. Like they try to code switch and they just crash and burn. Like it just will not work for them and it's not gonna happen. What is more true to form is that you have a lot of scuba divers. So you okay. got the black folks in the workplace. <laughs> <laughs> this is a learned skill. People marginally, learned skill, it requires special equipment. You gotta put on that gear, it's heavier. You weren't born with the fins, but you can strap them on so you can swim alongside the other fish. But what do you have strapped to your back? An oxygen tank. What do you have on your face? A mask. You know I had to mention masks today, Laura. You know I had to Appropriately. We gotta put on our mask, wear the masks save the people. So putting on your mask, but that oxygen tank has to be refilled. So no matter how well you can swim and how adept you are being a scuba diver, there is something about the constitution of the water and the elements of the, within the water that do not allow you to fully thrive and flourish without some significant adaptation. Mm -hmm. And you continually have to come out of the water, the code switching, in order to get the energy that you truly need. So how do we change the broader environment so that we can all flourish? in a culture that is healthier and that doesn't place a disproportionate burden on one set of individuals to have to carry this weight, the physical weight of masking themselves and <laughs> strapping oxygen to their back in order to, to swim with to the be tide. be side by side in an environment that would otherwise be inhospitable to them. Exactly, exactly. So so how do we help people flourish? So how do we help people flourish? Um, I'm talking culture change, right? And then we're also talking about developmental relationships. I mean, those are two pieces that I think are really important. So um, culture change, you know, there are a number of beliefs and assumptions that we have that are quite frankly flawed um, around cultural fit. Uh, we sort of conflate um, traditions and stylistic preferences with job requirements. So I continue to dial it back to say, okay, what does it take to get the job done? That's one piece. And are there diverse ways that one can do that job? 
And if we can identify that, then we can start to build a more inclusive climate that has the flexibility we need for diverse people to thrive and flourish. Um, we also need to think about that toxicity in the water. You know, what, what is in the, in the atmosphere? Um, do you need some chlorine? You probably do. <laughs> You're in a pool and you know that folks are jumping in and out and you don't want COVID. You're going to make right. sure that it's chlorinated properly. You are such a mom, Laura. <laughs> I am a mom. So when people bring in those elements, we have to be prepared to have policies and procedures that are gonna sanitize the atmosphere so that it doesn't pollute the environment for people and disproportionately affect those who are most vulnerable. Um, so who's taking the climate? Who's taking the pulse to make sure it's healthy? Is it psychologically safe? Is everybody free to take risks, to be honest and transparent and saying, you know, hey, I don't know. Doesn't mean that the cafeteria has to turn into um, you know, a poetry lounge or something for people to feel like they're bringing their whole selves to work. But if they could at least say, look, on this project, I think we should do something different. Or I'm a little concerned that we might made a mistake. And no, they're not going to get their head chopped off. Or their career's right. not going to end. That's a safer environment for everybody. And then in the meantime, while you're changing the culture, you've got to continue to help people to grow and develop in that culture. Walk a mile in somebody's shoes or, you know, strap, put on your mask, you know, <laughs> what do you need to filter? Strap an oxygen tank to your back and start to swim around and get a sense of what it feels like to be an other within your environment and organization and then mentor people from there. Don't just point to Barack Obama or, John Lewis or Michelle Obama or, you know, all of these Simone Biles, Serena Williams, you know, all of these like larger than life people who clearly have super hero characteristics in their ability to beat the odds and get to where they were. And they said, well, if they did it, then of course you can do it. Oprah Winfrey. People like to use Oprah. <laughs> if Oprah did it, then you can do it. Come on. You know, that what they've been there's able to accomplish reason, is amazing. Yeah, there's a reason why those people have get by with one name and one name. One only. Name. They're yeah. kind of singular. They're kind of singular, <laughs> yeah. But you can't keep expecting everybody to be the unicorn. So the developmental relationship is find somebody who's got some potential. They're gonna need some support, they're gonna need some help some space to grow and develop and learn, but give them the bandwidth to do that and, and watch them flourish. Before the break, you were helping us see the importance of, you know, walking a mile in somebody else's shoes and how we can make space in our relationships with the people at work, particularly the talent we see when we have the ability to mentor, sponsor, and support others to try and help make a comfortable environment at work. It seems like one of the first things we'd want to do is figure out how can we talk frankly about the real issues at hand, which are race, except talking about race is really scary and hard. It is. How do we begin? Where do we begin? Yeah, we, well, we have to begin with our own race stories. So we all carry within us a set of stories about the role that race has played in our lives. Now, in the United States, 
because race is a public social issue, it's quite likely that most people do have a story about race and the role that it's played in their lives. Now, Laura, I recognize for many people that story is race has not played any role in my life at all. Race has not been relevant for me. I don't know what the big deal is. That's something that happened a long time ago. It isn't something that affected my day-to-day -day reality or anyone else around me. I don't think race was an issue. We all got along pretty well in my school, neighborhood, community, workplace, and so forth. Um, but you first have to kind of check in with yourself about those race stories and narratives and then pause and examine some of the assumptions that you're making that come through the lens of your experience and say, well, this is my story about race. This is how race has impacted my life. I wonder how it's different for other people. Then you're in a position to start engaging in conversations about race from a point of inquiry. Now, there are voices that have been marginalized. And so at this moment in time, they are getting a little bit more of the airtime than they've had in years past to share their stories about race. But just because we're hearing their stories about race doesn't mean that their majority counterparts don't also have stories about race and responsibility to have these conversations and to learn more. So the conversations about race that come with that inquiry stance say, here's my story. I'd love to learn a little bit more about yours. And then as we start to hear it, we have to honor and accept other people's truths for what they are. Um, we get super defensive in conversations about race um, because we feel for some reason that if another person of a different racial category had a materially different experience than mine, then they must be right and I must be wrong. And it's not a battle over right and wrong. It's an opportunity to learn about the diversity in different people's experiences. And then if this is your goal, work together in shared commitment to create a more just society. Let's do part one, part two. Part two, how can we work together to create a more just society? There's really no room for us to start debating whether or not you experienced racism last week or last year, or whether or not you think you're a racist. Like this, those conversations not are really productive, slow right? Road and we to got a nowhere. lot of work to do. Slow road to nowhere. <laughs> Share your stories, and then, if you're interested, start to talk about how you might work together in service of racial justice. So, you put it so beautifully, and as you say it, it's like those moments where you know somebody really wise is showing you there is a way forward here that it sounds like it's rooted in some patience and compassion yeah it's not a competition it's how to make space for these things together but we need to have a lot of these conversations we need to have them in a lot of different places so the way you described it sounded like the way you and i could have that conversation person to person 
with a basic level of trust and respect there. We know these conversations have to happen in places though where that may not be a given or that may not be felt by everybody. So talk to me, help me understand the, the two different um, approaches if I want to help have those conversations as a leader of a team and if I want to start having those conversations, but I'm not in a position of authority. I don't yeah. come from the safe place. Yeah. So I would say, you know, conversations with whom and um, in what context. Um, and then most importantly, like, what is your intention? Like, what are you hoping to, to get out of the conversation? What are you hoping to learn? What are you hoping to co-create? You know, what, what are you hoping to build through the conversation that you're having? So if I'm a team leader, like I want to understand more about people's racialized experiences because it's my responsibility to understand how to maximally engage every single human in my team from a position of strength and how to create a safe space so that people can grow and develop in their areas of weakness. And guess what? When there's a lot of racism present, we're overlooking some people's strengths, we're overinflating other people's strengths, and <laughs> people are, you know, some don't realize their need to grow and develop, and others are so concerned and afraid that because of racism, their potential isn't recognized. You know, they're also trying to cover up and hide their weaknesses and shortcomings. So bottom line, growth is not happening. So it's my responsibility to open up what I call the hush box, which includes race, also includes religion, politics, mm -hmm. and yep. social class background. These are all things that people don't talk about so freely. Ability status, varying abilities, People don't talk about those as much as well in the organization either. But if so we that's, to, that's the hush box. Oh, that's what things that are in the hush box. Yeah. And, those and are that hush, hush box is like the centerpiece on our Thanksgiving table sometimes. Yeah. It's right there in the middle of everything, but we don't really go there. We know it's there. But when we have a thought or a belief or whatever, we tuck it away in that box. Okay. You know, so that's, that's kind of why it's a box. We like take it and we tuck it and we park it and we're like, oh yeah, don't. Is it know. like Pandora's box though? Like we put it all in there Ooh. and we're really frightened about what'll happen when it opens or is there a way to open the box that doesn't have to like, you know, wreak destruction? We fear that it's Pandora's box, but I believe it's a treasure chest. So I think those are gems and they're the gems of, you know, the wisdom and also the pain that comes from our lived experiences. They're the space in which we can truly connect and learn about each other and what life really means to each of us. And that's when we can be most innovative, most creative, most collaborative. I mean, what do we say when we want to grow and innovate at work? Let's get out the box. Let's think outside of the box here. What <laughs> box are we talking about? That's the box. The hush box. <laughs> all the interesting stuff about us, all the crazy and wild ideas that we have, all the random experiences that we brought. Um, those are the things in the box that can be generative. It, the only time it becomes Pandora's box is when your identity is rooted in someone else's oppression. That's a modified 
re, a, paraphrase, a, a paraphrase of James Baldwin. You know, I support your freedom and liberty of expression until um, it is fundamentally rooted in my oppression and subjugation. And then, I, you know, I draw the line. But we're having a different kind of conversation at that time. Our goal is not at that point to maximize our individual and collective potential. You know, our goal is to exclude and shut down and maybe even damage and harm certain individuals you know, while welcoming, embracing others. So I don't think that's likely to happen. If I'm a team leader, I can facilitate these conversations because I view people's identities as essential resources that help us to get our best work done. So it's my job then to help us to identify and tap into those resources so we can get our best work done. And I, I would take the same stance as an individual who feels less powerful within the organization. Like if I don't have a leadership title or a status, I feel like I'm just a, you know, I'm a person, I'm a member of the organization, um, but I still play a role because- You're there for a reason. I'm there for a reason. And guess what? The way that I treat other people around me has a profound impact, profound impact on the quality of engagement and experience they have of work. So speaking about the emotional impact, the experiences mm-hmm. that we have and that we're carrying, I love that you, in kind of honoring what's in the hush box as gems, they're, they're who we really are. There's also the pain that we're mm-hmm. carrying day to day. Is a way to start to acknowledge and make room to see, to, to hear the pain from our colleagues that they're carrying every day. Somebody was just telling me a story of, um, they were in a big group meeting, um, overwhelmingly um, white, few black members of the team were there. And the person leading the meeting said, I wanna go around and everybody tell me one positive thing that's happened since COVID started. And one of the black women said, I can't, it sucks. I have lost family members. Everybody I know is in pain. I'm not going to pretend. And I was so awestruck by the story, partly because the teller, it was a huge wake up moment for the woman who was telling me this story, but also to raise the question of people are grieving around us and in pain and how do, it's like, if somebody died in, in, you know, we send condolence cards, we send flowers, but it doesn't mean their pain went away. How do we make room for that? so that they can feel safe and accepted and seen at a time when they probably need the support. I think that's been the lesson of 2020. I think a lot of leaders have been caught off guard um, because that's something else that we keep in the hush box is the pain. Um, you know, we've tucked it away on so many levels and coded emotionality as unprofessional. Right. Um, unless it comes in a certain package, then they're a passionate, enthusiastic go-getter. Um, right. You know, they're just, you know, they just have a really strong personality as all. They just get really fired up about stuff. But let it come from another package. We all know the stereotypes about women and people of color. Their emotion is coded as a threat, you mm-hmm. know, that, they, that they're out of control. And therefore, they're going to be disruptive to our system and, a, and our organization. So we already have a set of gendered and racialized rules about emotional expression. Um, but the summer of 2020 has 
just brought on so much grief in mass and in rapid succession mm-hmm. that we're having conversations. We are showing our anger. We're crying in we in meetings. Uh, we're taking off the masks. We that oxygen to. mask. We were like, well, forget it. I'm drowning anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking this thing off. I don't need this extra weight. So we're taking off that mask that says, oh, I'm fine. Everything's good. Here's one nice thing. I learned how to bake sourdough bread. Well, last <laughs> week I cleaned out one of my closets. So that was a win. You know, to just say, you know what? I'm in pain. This sucks. I'm not doing really very well. I mean, I had a client meeting this week and we were talking about some things they could do in one of their social media campaigns to get people talking about race and getting people engaged. And I said, yeah, these are all really great questions. And I think they would stimulate I said, but I, let me just touch on sort of the pulse of where many people are right now, where many black people are this week. Okay. Chadwick Bozeman died on Friday which was August 28th, which is the anniversary of the March on Washington, which was the postponed day of celebrating Jackie Robinson 42, whom Chad Bozeman played, which is also the anniversary of Emmett Till's murder. A lot of that wrapped up on August 28th. And then in the middle of these pandemics, we find out that the Black Panther superhero was in fact a superhero. Living in pain every day. Living in pain every day to live out these narratives, these biographies of trailblazing Black leaders, both lived and fictional, to create this experience of hope and strength for the world, right? And so there's grief. Mm -hmm. You know, there was Kobe Bryant grief earlier this year. Yeah, it's there this was is COVID deep grief and this sorrow. is some deep deep stuff and we have to touch it. So you're absolutely right. If you want to really have a heart to heart with someone right now, you have to be prepared to talk about the sadness and the grief. I would also just say as a mother, you know, my kids started school this year and they're 100% virtual and I personally Laura I'm glad that I did not have the hybrid choice for them because it would have been excruciating for me to Mm -hmm. weigh the pros and cons and to have to make that decision about whether to do hybrid or online and all of that their school system did not even put that up as an offer and I I was I was relieved but even with that I can see their loss right now and starting the school year and not being physically present with their children And that's something that I go and I check on them and then I come back and I sit in a meeting. But I'm here in the Zoom, but they're in the other room and I'm carrying that part back and forth for them too. So it's a lot right now for caregivers. It's a lot for for marginalized communities. And it is requiring managers and leaders to be more compassionate and more brave than they've been before, just to create the safe spaces for us to really talk about all of this. So Laura, one of the things that you're talking, that you're making clear as you're talking about this is that we have a lot of heroes amongst us. 
We have heroes whose stories haven't been told. We have people who are telling those stories. We also have a few heroes that are becoming more and more famous every day. Two of them, one I'm proud to say is our new Dean of Wharton, Erica James. We also have our black, first black woman vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris. This is big, this is important. So it's huge. So aside from a moment to celebrate all that this means, because it matters, what are the things that they have to grapple with? What should we expect for them as they're in these high profile positions trying to lead a time like this? I am so thrilled to see so many women of color in impactful leadership roles for such a time as this. Mm. <laughs> and I just couldn't be more grateful that they are prepared and equipped and it helps me sleep at night to know <laughs> that I have so many just crazy smart sister scholars who are running things at colleges and universities all over the world. And I know Kamala Harris is campaigning right now. That, you know, that gives a different kind of hope. But there are also, like Dean James, so many sister scholars who have been an inspiration for so long in the ways that they've navigated their careers and as trailblazers and and now it, it have that decision-making power that goodness knows we need. So I would say, first of all, like we should all just celebrate that these dynamic leaders are in place right now because please rest assured, they had to do 10 times more to get to where they are than their counterparts did and than their counterparts ever have. I mean, the, the obstacles that they've had to cross, they've had to be so smart so resourceful, so resilient in order to get to where they are right now that you better believe their their leadership game is on point. Yeah, they're wearing that oxygen mask and that tank like 24-7 and have for years. And running marathons while doing it. <laughs> so, and they look not even swimming. Like, that's what I'm saying. Not even swimming marathons. They're running marathons with that stuff on. In case it's a, tri maybe it's a triathlon. Maybe they have the bike, ride, jump in, swim, all that. There's a lot of that. So, um, so that's exciting. But we also know from the research that women and people of color are more likely to be placed in glass cliff leadership roles. So high stakes, lots of stake right now. What more yeah, do really? we take than the global pandemic and all of the implications of it layered with the you know public exposure? Yeah, we couldn't of, have crafted oh my goodness. a more intense case study. And the impact on higher education? Right. I mean, really. The, and the nation's economy, everything, right? So glass cliff, also a high risk of failure, mm -hmm. you know? So there are two explanations for why this happens. One is, oh, well, I guess they get the leadership opportunities that other people don't really want. Glass cliff opportunities are less desirable. So people who have more of a safety net will, are not as likely to pursue them. That could be. There's some partial support for that. Another is that they're not as afraid to take on the risk. They have more confidence and you know why? Because they have had to take on risks and beat the odds and do a lot with relatively <laughs> more than many of their counterparts have. So 
you know, whereas others may see it as a terrifying position to be in, they see it as a situation that is well within their means to be able to, to navigate and lead effectively. Thank goodness they have that sense of self and that call to try. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things you mentioned before, a, a term that's just so beautiful that I loved was your sister scholars. Yeah. And I know that you are also a sorority member, Alpha Kappa Alpha. Talk yes. to me about what that community of sisters means to you. Oh, it's a tremendous bond. My grandmother was a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority. She was initiated at Fisk University um, in the 1930s. And then she transferred from Fisk to the University of Michigan. And she graduated from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor at a time when black students were not allowed to live on campus. So she lived with a local family in the neighborhood. Um, Years later, I earned my PhD from the University of Michigan. My younger sister earned a master's in public health, younger cousin earned a bachelor's degree. So we, many of us, we traveled in her footsteps in many ways. Lots of aunts, both of my sisters are members of Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority. It's the emphasis on scholarship and service as the foundation of our sisterhood. And knowing that that is connected with this legacy of trailblazing Black women like my grandmother, Joyce. Incidentally, my other grandmother, Norma, was a longtime member of the another large Black sorority, Delta Sigma Theta. Um, But both of them were so dynamic and amazing. And it's humbling to try to walk in their footsteps. And we see that with Kamala Harris and her reverence for our dear sisterhood as well. Well, Laura, I have to tell you, speaking of scholarship and service, trailblazers and leaders and role models, you are all of that. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has really been such a privilege. For people who would like to learn more about your work, where can they find you and it? LinkedIn is a great play to find me. I'm on Twitter, handle Alignment Quest, and www.lauramorganroberts.com is one website. Or just look up UVA Darden School of Business. We have lots of great, interesting insight and faculty colleagues there that I'd love for you to connect with too. Indeed, and I'm also gonna give a shout out to the videos on YouTube. They're amazing. You can learn a lot. So, Laura, thank you for joining us. And thank you for everyone who tuned in. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And check out our full catalog of past shows through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Just search on Women at Work and Laura's Arrow to find us. And find us on Twitter at SXM Business and at Laura's Arrow. Special thanks, as always, to my beloved Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, and my at-home tech crew, Jeff Greenfield. I'm Laura's Arrow, and you been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Take care of yourselves and each other, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.